Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Here's a stupid joke. Maybe you've heard it. If you're really a goth, where were you when we sacked Rome? It is not actually funny. It implies that somebody could have all kinds of, you know, black clothing and unconventional makeup and an extensive record collection that includes a lot of Bauhaus. And yet, if they were not there at the very beginning, back before it was cool, back during Rome-sacking times, they're not actually authentic. Again, it is dumb. But it does tell you a story. The story of a term that centuries ago meant something very different than what it means today. And today, I'm going to get into how Goth went from meeting a mustachioed barbarian on the frontier of the Roman Empire to people who, again, wear lots of black clothing and unconventional makeup. And I'm not going to get into the etymology of the term Goth itself. I'm not going to get into the various Germanic languages that, you know, provided the root of that word. I'm just going to start where the term Goth is fully formed. And it is used to describe various Germanic tribes outside of Rome, the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths. And if you spend any time online looking at Gothic artifacts, Gothic armor, renditions of what the Goths probably looked like, it is kind of amusing that neither the Visigoths nor the Ostrogoths looked, well, like modern Goths at all. Those guys, with their mustaches and their helmets and their shields and their cool swords, they would probably fit right in at a certain kind of very dramatic and demonstrative metal show. But the people who were literally called Goths do not look, well, Gothic. They're called Goths, but the aesthetic comes from somewhere else. The aesthetic that we call Gothic does not come from the Gothic people. It starts much, much later on, centuries later, with architecture. And the architecture that we call Gothic architecture, you know what it looks like. Soaring spires emphasizing vertical movement, vaulted ceilings, flying buttresses. I will pause so you can have a moment to giggle at flying buttresses. Okay. It's all astounding to look at. And starting in the 1100s, this is what a lot of very large buildings, mostly churches in Europe, particularly France and Germany, looked like. But the people who made it didn't think of it as Gothic architecture. They just thought of it as, you know, architecture. But there was one critic who was not a fan of it at all. And that was a critic called Giorgio Vasari, who in a 1550 book called Lives of the Most Excellent Painters, Sculptors, and Architects, or sometimes shortened to Lives of the Artist, or just The Lives, he had this to say about European churches of the past few centuries. Quote, there issued from the hands of the masters of these times those puppet-like and uncouth figures that are still seen in the works of old. The same thing happened to architecture, seeing that, since it was necessary to build, since form and good method were completely lost by reason of the death of the craftsmen and the destruction and ruin of their works, those who applied themselves to this exercise built nothing that either in ordering or in proportion showed any grace or design or reason whatsoever. Wherefore there came to arise new architects who brought from their barbarous races the method of that manner of buildings that are called by us today German? 
they made some that are rather a source of laughter for us moderns than creditable to them, until better craftsmen afterward found a better style, in some measure similar to the good style of the ancients, even as that manner may be seen throughout all Italy in the old churches. Unquote. Vasari is nostalgic for Rome, particularly for the Roman Empire under Constantine, and he has lots of great things to say about Florence and lots of things that were in Florence during his time. But he does not like the recent centuries. He loves Rome. He loves Florence. The stuff in between that, very much not a fan. He is an early example of somebody who sees civilization in Rome, civilization in the Renaissance, and just a whole bunch of disease and darkness in the intervening centuries, which is not how we think of history anymore. He is a very, like, not contemporary framer of how all this stuff works. But throughout the lives of the artists, he goes out of his way to disparage the people who, between the Roman Empire and Florence, were actually building things, were doing stuff, were making art and architecture. And he likes to throw all kinds of shade at the various German peoples, or Goths, whom he holds responsible for the fall of Rome. He also thinks that Germanic Goths are basically uncouth barbarians who are just sort of aping and imitating Roman architecture and not actually making anything original. He thinks that they're just trying to make what a church or temple should look like, but they're so clumsy and gothic that they don't really know how it works. And oopsie-daisy, that's where Notre Dame comes from. This guy is kind of painful to read. Because of his own nostalgia and his own ethnocentrism and his own fanboyness for the Roman Empire, Giorgio Vasari was sadly unable to appreciate how cool Gothic cathedrals really are. But he named them. In all of his complaints about ignorant Germans and their attempts to emulate Romans, he gave that form a name, Gothic, that we still use today. Now, unlike what we now consider Goth-esque, which is all about night and darkness, Gothic architecture itself had a strong emphasis on light, which I find kind of funny. It is very easy to look at an ornate cathedral full of nooks and crannies and see the shadows and see all the details and see all the little curly cues and ornamentation that kind of give this sort of impression of ordered chaos. But for the most part, Gothic cathedrals went out of their way to get natural light into the main place of worship. Those flying buttresses weren't just there to look cool or to be called buttresses. They were there to hold the weight of the building. If the weight is being held up by a buttress, then that means the wall is no longer load-bearing. And if the wall is not load-bearing, you can fill it with stuff, like glass. Large, extravagant, stained-glass windows that let in the light of heaven filtered through multicolored glass onto the people below. And this was a serious contrast to other earlier architecture, which often had to rely upon load-bearing walls. That meant smaller windows. That meant less natural light. That meant you had lots of interior illumination, like torches and sconces and that sort of thing. For Europe, Gothic architecture wasn't a descent into darkness. It was an elevation into celestial light. It was an invitation to literally let the sunshine in. Still, though, there's a certain something about all of those pointed arches and all of those vaulted ceilings and those details that suggest a kind of 
ornate verticality, a kind of transcendental reaching, and much to Giorgio Vasari's chagrin, those architectural conventions stuck around. They inspired future generations. They inspired them for literal centuries. Two hundred years after Vasari's book, his term, Gothic, was used in the subtitle of a novel. In 1764, the author Horace Walpole published a mystery called The Castle of Antranto, subtitled A Gothic Story, that took place in one of those old, ornate medieval buildings. And, for the first edition, Walpole pretended that this was an authentic medieval romance from the times of, you know, Gothic architecture, and it had only been recently rediscovered and translated. But later on, he did say, oh, sorry, this was a hoax. Actually, I wrote it myself. And the story itself, it concerns family drama, romance, untimely deaths, an ancient prophecy, and, of course, a Gothic castle where it all takes place. It's considered to be the first of what would become Gothic literature, which often mixed romance with supernatural elements and drama. You've probably read two of the most famous and influential examples of Gothic literature out there, Dracula and Frankenstein. Edgar Allan Poe is also in there, so we're getting into more of what a modern person thinks of as goth. What with the dark romance and the drama and all of that. And that term, gothic, was chosen by Walpole as a reference to the architecture and the time period that his story took place in. Later on, the term was applied to other novels in the same mold. Meanwhile, over in the architectural world, the gothic style, that was undergoing something of a revival in the UK and France during the 1800s, the same time that a lot of those gothic novels are coming out. And a lot of those gothic novels are set in a lot of those gothic revival buildings, which were new, but did have a certain retro dark romance about them. So, we're almost there. But we still have one more step, and that's music. So far, we've gone from Germanic tribes to architecture and books, but how did Gothic or Goth get applied to a certain subset of rock and roll? By the 1960s, Gothicness was pretty well entrenched as being associated with a certain moodiness, with, you know, Dracula stuff. So it was just a matter of time before some wordy purple prose rock critic used gothic as a way to describe a band. And the lucky critic who was the first one to do that was named John Stickney, who, in March of 1967, wrote an article for the Williams record called Four Doors to the Future, Gothic Rock is Their Thing. It was all about the doors. And I wouldn't call the doors goth, necessarily, but they do have a certain, you know, darkness about them. And they do have the honor of being the first band ever to be called gothic in print. Stickney wrote, quote, Two hands pierced the slits of the curtain and drew it back sharply as a spotlight racked a stage and exposed a man who squinted in the brightness. There was applause that he did not care to hear, and the spotlight caught the contempt in the faces of the other musicians as Jim Morrison tentatively fingered the microphone. He screamed and reeled, throttling the microphone and gazing at a sea of blank faces. He shouted a strung-out, distorted, and violent stream of word images, which twisted the faces into expressions of shock yet fascination. Then there were the drums, crashing against a pulsating rush of the organ, while the guitar pirouetted around and threw the rhythmic contest with a new sort of terrifying insistence. 
The doors were opening as Morrison's words found their way through the circuitous maze of a thousand wires in the impassive, deafening amplifiers. Wow, that is some ornate writing going on, um, but totally appropriate given, you know, the ornateness and over-the-topness of Doors lyrics. Uh, Stickney continues, The Doors met New York, for better or for worse, at a press conference in the gloomy vaulted wine cellar of the Delmonico Hotel, the perfect room to honor the gothic rock of the Doors. It was a good scene. Very few press people. In a lot of the city's rock hangers-on, hirsute and free, were all there, sampling a new sort of high. Alcohol. Chicks in mischievous miniskirts sipped daiquiris and waited for Morrison to show. No one was sure if he would, but Andy Warhol walked in, and everybody breathed a sigh of relief that this indeed was the place to be. Unquote. So there you go. First ever written instance of a band being called Gothic. And that basement that was supposedly the perfect setting for them is in the Delmonico Hotel, which is kind of sort of famous among rock geeks as being the place where the Beatles met Bob Dylan. It is still around today. It has undergone a really unfortunate bit of rebranding. It's now known as the Trump Park Avenue. Ironically, it's not a gothic building at all. The 1929 building, which is apparently a perfect setting for the gothic rock at the doors, is in a style known as neo-Renaissance or Renaissance Revival architecture. It's also something called Italianate. So, you know, very specifically not gothic. But who knows? Maybe Giorgio Vasari would have liked it. Still, though, that particular adjective that had been applied to architecture and literature was now out there, describing music as well. And that would just keep happening. Over the course of the 1970s, the term would be applied to bands like The Velvet Underground, Susie and the Banshees, and Joy Division. And here, listeners, is where the name of a series of Germanic tribes just outside the Roman Empire finally comes to mean what we think of as goth today. And I love the story of this word. I love how circuitous and all over the place it is, and I love how it demonstrates how changeable and weird language can be. But there's also a bit of continuity. Sure, the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths are more power metal than goth, but from the days of flying buttresses to Frankenstein to Joy Division, gothic means something that sparks intrigue and fascination and shows how emotionally uplifting and also tumultuous the world can be. That is a common thread expressed in spires reaching for the heavens, books about moody castles, or in songs with arching guitars that echo into the night. They are all very different, but they are all, indeed, gothic. This podcast is totally, completely, utterly listener-supported by you. Sign up for a monthly donation over at weirdhistorypodcast.com. Also, if you want to go over to iTunes, give us ratings and reviews. That would be highly helpful. That helps people discover the show. Uh, I am on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. Like the podcast on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. Thank you all very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye. (laughs) 